just to clear up any doubts as I begin, uh, this is not a sermon on stewardship, okay? This passage, in fact, is not really dealing with money and land, although that's a part of it. It's dealing with how we respond to our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus, and our indwelling Holy Spirit and how we see them. But you've got to admit that this story was a chilling day of giving at the church. I've heard several preachers say that they'd like to have been there the next Sunday when they took the offering up. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I'm not concerned about that at all. I'm concerned about how they saw and understood the Holy Spirit of God. When Ananias and Sapphira hatched the plot to deceive the apostles in the church, they never suspected that their infamous deed would be told and retold over the centuries to follow. And they would be very embarrassed that their name was used in such a, such a way. You know, both of them had wonderful names for Christians at that time. They were well known. The apostles knew Ananias by name. He was active in the church. But they demonstrated something about, first of all, about us that we need to be careful about. And that's stuff. Stuff challenges us. The challenge of possessions is one of the greatest tests that God puts before us. What do we see of value? Jesus wore a workman's robe, not a priestly garment. He told his disciples not to carry a purse, which was a, a commonly a man's way of taking money with him, and said, don't even take a change of clothes. He did not want them to be distracted by things of this world. Apparently, the early church had in part figured out that stuff can help others. And so, in their quest to touch lives, and I remind you, the early church was in an environment not like our own. There was no way of caring for the needy as we have. We, as, as, as one nutritionist said the other day, probably have the most obese poor people in the world. In that day, people starved to death literally in their own hovel because they had nothing to eat. And the disciples saw a way that they could take what they had and make a true difference in these people's lives. Not only that, but to keep them alive. Now what they were doing... It is simply this. They believe that people are more important than things. And our lives can be changed demonstrably if we would believe that. Acts 4.32 says, The company of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Now let me tell you this. Luke was not a Marxist. I've had people say that. I've argued with folks over the years in academic circles about this. There's no such thing as a Christian Marxist, nor is there any such thing as a Christian socialist for several reasons. And, and I'm going off on a tangent, so forgive me, okay? I've just got to say this. Number one, a foundational tenet of socialism is that mankind's the center of all things and there is no God. 
So therefore, you can't see that as socialistic. Secondly, the Christian community seeks to, sh to share out of a heart of choice and because we love others, not because we're forced by a government to do that. And thirdly, Marx claimed that nearly every human attitude and action could be traced to economic sources, and we strongly disagree with that. God gives us freely. He expects us to give back freely. We know that what we have here on earth will soon be gone when we're gone, and it is of little or no value eternally in what we do. The greatest argument against this godless theory is 1 Corinthians 13. Because love is the maximum potential that we can have to be like Christ. Jesus preached that where your treasure is, there your heart will be in Luke 12. And insisted that there were higher treasures than material possessions. Taught that very plainly. Real treasures like friendship, virtue, integrity, freedom, and love, especially love of God, bring a person into harmony with all aspects of life. Yet so many Christians wrestle with that. John 14, 23 and 24 says, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. That is so important for us to understand. He said, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear, not my own, but of the Father's. What a powerful teaching. Based upon this passage, many well-off persons, financially speaking, are really spiritually homeless because they've lost touch with the reality of who Christ is. Years ago in a church that I pastored in Atlanta, I had a, a member come up to me and very brashly and boldly say, and, you know, I, I, none of my business what people give or don't give. And he said, he said, my gift to the Lord is not money. It's my talent singing in the choir. When he said that, his wife started laughing loudly because she realized that the value he was giving was not great. Shortly thereafter, that changed, by the way, because he realized that giving to the Lord as we do, and, and you know, I've never, I've never preached a sermon on stewardship or tithing, because I don't think there's any more uncomfortable feeling than to sit in church and hear that, but I have told you this repeatedly. When you come to church and you don't give, you've not worshipped. You've left out a very important part, because what you're saying when you give your tithe is this. You're saying, Lord, I, I trust you with my heart and my soul, my life, my future, my family, everything, but also trust you with what I have in the way of money. And I demonstrate to you that you're more important than anything else. As one little old lady that was the treasurer of my church in Zebulon, Georgia, and been the treasurer there for probably 400 years, she looked like it anyway, she said this to me. She said, over the years I've watched people and they're giving. And she said, those who give regularly and from their heart are different people. They're happy, 
they're at peace, and they trust their God. And that has always stayed with me. But let's get back to, to what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. You know, Ananias' name means gracious. Sapphira's name means beautiful. Here are a gracious and beautiful couple who are part of the church, who are loved in the church, who are known in the church, and in the midst of a time where they are giving something very important to God, they hatch a plan of deception. Now, we know what happens here because we know beyond that we can read more into the story. People were taking properties that they owned, and Ananias was from a rather wealthy family. Sapphira had come from money. So they weren't giving their last piece of land, selling it. They were taking a piece of land, they sold it, and they had already promised to give it to the, the apostles to distribute among the poor. Someone asked me one time, they said, is this the practice of God to do this? I said, I hope not. Every one of us will be dead soon. Because we all make that mistake where we make a commitment to do something and we really don't think it through. Sort of like the parable about building the house and counting the cost. We don't do that. And we're not able to follow through on what we promise to do. We've all done that. Not only in church, but in life or in business. And when we do that, you know, we're, we, we learn a lesson to stop and wait and be sure that we can follow through. But that's not what is going on here with Ananias and Sapphira, not at all. What is going on here is there are two people that are deceiving the group there, trying to achieve the level of spirituality everyone else has, but their human greed causes them to hold on to just a little bit of the money. They really didn't lie to the church because the church didn't know all the details. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And when this happened, it happened not as a statement of what God will always do, but as a statement to the early church about integrity and honesty. There's actually nothing wrong with what they're doing had they have not made that commitment, but they did. First, I want you to realize this. Ananias was being led by the wrong spirit. That was the problem from the beginning. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money there for you? You know, I can't imagine what he felt like standing there. Can you? In front of everybody and in front of, 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 of this apostle. Now, I want to remind you, and you know the story, it wasn't so long before this that Simon Peter was the man that lied. He's the man that stood up and he said, Lord, I'll be the last one to leave you. They'll all go. I'll still be here. And he was the first one that left him after Judas betrayed him. Simon Peter cursed his name three times there before the Roman soldiers that stood around the fire of coals. But Simon Peter, when he changed, he changed forever. And what he's saying there is, is so important. He says, you have not lied just to men, but you've lied to God. I wonder if Ananias fully realized that Satan had filled his heart with this. 
I'm speaking of pride. Imagine how that happens, the arrogance of doing such a thing. I've told you before that the most awkward thing I can ever imagine is for me to be standing up behind a pulpit preaching. It used to terrify me when I would look at our pastor preaching when I was a young boy. In the youth group, I would always find the pole that was in the middle of the room and get behind it thinking, and I was skinny back then. Now it wouldn't do me any good, but back then I could pretty well hide. You remember, you were in that same, the same room. I would get behind that pole hoping that Dan DeHaan would not call on me to pray, and he would do it every time I got intimidated nervous. He would call on me to pray because I hated to pray in public. I just did not want to do that. I didn't like standing in front of people. I, I've told you, I had a horrible stutter until I was a teenager, a horrible stutter. And I would even stutter if, if someone called on our phone at home and I answered it and it was an adult, I'd start stuttering. And I never imagined that I would stand up here. And there's never a day that, that I come here to preach that I ever become proud because I know at that very moment, if God wanted to, he could take away my ability to do this. And I would become shy and be... Could I hide behind there, Jeff, you think? I'd have to squat down, wouldn't I? I would hide somewhere and I would stutter. But I realize God gives us gifts and they're not of us, they're from him. And we have to understand the importance of that. And I think somewhere in the relationship of the body of Christ there, Ananias thought, huh, my money, I'll just give part of it, they won't know. And God established a standard early on. You see, if you become one of those people that's more concerned about image than reality, you're in trouble. If you get to the point where you think, oh, I want to cast the image of being this kind of person. I want to, I want to pretend to be like this, even though I'm not quite there yet. That's the direction I'm going. You're in trouble already because here's what you're doing. You're, th you're letting those who look at you determine what you will be rather than seeking God's guidance. You're letting what people imagine you are to become the most important thing in your mind rather than what God seeks to do in your life. As a little old lady that taught in the junior department, the church I grew up in, she said, Young folks, don't become like some of the teenagers we've got today that are in, going to college. And she said, and here's what they want to do. They want to buy clothes they don't like to impress people that they don't know, spending money they don't have. What a wise thing to say. That's exactly what we're doing when we try to impress people with something we're not. I'm always reminded when I hear the word Camelot and I read one of the various, various and sundry books I have about the Kennedy family. I'm reminded of the broken heart that Rose Kennedy had for most of her life. Because you see, she had an eldest daughter that you never saw out in public. Her name was Rosemary, or as they called her, Rosemary. She had some emotional problems. And back in that day, image was everything, and so the Kennedy family wanted to appear as stable and fine and wonderful and, and perfectly normal, a, a role model of a family, and Joe Kennedy insisted on that. Rose Marie was taken to a doctor in New York, 
who had developed a new way of dealing with people that had mental issues. And so at the age of 23, in 1941, Rosemary Kennedy was one of the first people that had a lobotomy. The prefrontal cortex was severed from a connection with the rest of the brain. It was obvious after the surgery was performed that she had lost much of her emotions, her personality, and her ability to even converse with her siblings. They could ask her questions and she could answer them, but that was all. It was a horrible thing that was done for the absolute wrong reason. Rose Kennedy said that until she died, she said, I'll never be at peace with this until I stand before God and get his explanation of why my precious daughter went through this. Rosemary Kennedy lived to be 87 years old, died in 2005. She's very much loved by her siblings, but she was isolated in that room that had no windows for most of her life. And she suffered because someone believed that image was more important than reality. The second thing I want you to realize here is God is not putting this forth as a firm standard. Like I said, I'm glad God doesn't strike us dead when we promise to do something we don't. We'd, you think it's been empty over the last few months in this sanctuary on Sunday. None of us, Jeff and I wouldn't be here. No, no one would be here because we've all made those promises before. If you look at the whole scenario here, we have to wonder what is going on. And the reality is this. God wanted to teach a lesson to the early church about honesty. And God, in his omnipotent wisdom, no doubt knew that this behavior would not end here with them, but would continue on. And yes, if you're asking in your mind the question, uh, if they were Christians, did they go to heaven? Yes, they did. Absolutely. <laughs> a little bit before they wanted to. But they were struck dead because their example was one of paganism and selfishness, not of what God would desire. When it says fear and dread was put on the whole church, I guarantee you I would have been terrified. I'd probably found another church to go to myself. But the reality is they taught them a lesson and taught everybody a lesson to understand about honesty. When you pray, how do you pray to God? Because remember, God knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts before you even begin to pray. Honesty with God is one of the toughest things for a Christian to deal with because we have to adjust to the fact that God knows us down to our very core. He knows our sins. He knows our selfishness. He knows the things that entice us that we struggle with. He understands our blind spots, and we don't because we're blind to them. And yet he wants to work with us to make us into the person we need to be if we will allow him. And sometimes that's the toughest decision for a person to make. It says all the believers were in one heart and one mind, but the reality was they weren't. Ananias and Sapphira were not there. 
They wanted to be there. They wanted to look like the, the perfect church member. They wanted to cast that image, but they fell short. And yet they took something they could do that hopefully no one would see. And they did. Colonial Hills Baptist Church had a very sweet woman there who told everybody that, that she would break the family habit. Uh, her mother and her grandmother and her great-grandmother had a disease that I think is called halopecia, and their hair would come out. And when the first, uh, really before synthetic wigs, when, when human hair wigs were introduced, her mother wore them. Her grandmother just would tie a rag all around her head or put a, a, a hat on top of it, hopefully not a pillbox hat, but one that would cover it. And this woman said, I'll never have that disease. She consulted a lot of doctors. In her late 80s, she came to church. She sang in the choir, and, and I don't know if you, Henry Grosh, you ever got to know him, but Henry always enjoyed leading the choir there, and he was a, one of the best musicians you could ever imagine. But uh, Henry had to lead her out of the choir one Sunday morning when in her aged condition and her inability to see, she put her wig on backwards. And it was way down here in the back, and it was hiked up in the front. And, and she was found out in a realistic way. And her pride was not about money or anything, but about something else. And, and I always remember Dr. Grosh telling us long after she had died, he said, don't let anything become a point of pride for you. Because we can do that. And he said, we've got to have an attitude that always says we love the, uh, those around about us that God has given to us as a treasure and never question anything about them. Just love them and be there for them. But lastly, the church got Satan's attention when they began working. And see, here's, here's what we often forget about. The church was strong. It was being added to daily Things were happening there that were remarkable. And until then, Satan wasn't very focused on that, but suddenly was. And it's obvious why the evil one got a hold of Ananias and Sapphira, because that's what he was looking for. He was looking for a way to get into the church and to have an influence in such a way that he could take apart the church. He did the same thing in the Garden of Eden when he went after Eve. And then Eve conspired to go after Adam. And they were duped. When Satan gave them a win-win, you know, he said, look, you're just going to, be, you're going to be like God. He's just going to look around and say, wow, they're just like me now. They, they know good from evil. I'm terrified when I hear the way some people explain how they're sinning. And they have a way of, of, of explaining it that, that seems to cut the corners of sin off and make it seem almost justifiable. You know what I'm talking about. You've listened to some of these politicians. They know how to do it. They, they can make anything horrible and terrible look good. They can make it seem as if, you know, like I told you, when I was a kid, one of my favorite things my dad used to hear on television was a a company that loaned money to people that were hurting, and here's, here's the ad. The whole ad was this. Borrow enough money to get out of debt. Now think about that. 
borrow enough money to get out of debt. The one today that, that drives me crazy on the radio is this. It says, you know, you don't have to pay back all that money you borrowed on your credit cards. I want to say if you have a conscience and if you're a Christian, you do. And learn your lesson and don't borrow so much. But they tell them, you don't have to pay it back. No. <laughs> Try that with the IRS. See what happens. You see, the problem is if we begin going down that road, where do we end up? Where's our character and our integrity that God wants to stand out and to shine and to be important? This is the lie. Here's the lie that, that Ananias heard within his heart. You'll get the respect of the other believers because they will think that you have brought the entire proceeds to them and yet you'll still have some of the money to hold on to. And nobody will be hurt. Nobody will be hurt. Now the devil knows your past. And in this case, he's sort of like I'll give you an example that young people can understand. He's like Google. You know, Google knows everything about us. Laurie Manderson loves antiques. And I guarantee you, the first time she went on Google to look up an antique shop somewhere that she was going, Google noticed it. And then every time, she can go in there and say, well, I want to find some shampoo for my dog or something to give my daughter and, or whatever. Guess what's going to pop up in ads on there? The antiques. Because like the devil, and I, really Google's more like the devil than you imagine. And if our live feed goes off right now, Michael, that's why. It's my fault. Sorry. Because they know what our weaknesses are. And they play on them. They go after you. Here's, here's the really thing you need to understand. They get paid for doing that. That's where they make their money. They're not giving anything away to you. They're selling space to tempt you from those people that have made products or they're selling products. That's what it's all about. But Satan works the same way. He knows what your weaknesses are. He knows what to tempt you. He's not going to tempt you with something that you've defeated or never desired. No, he's going to go after your weaknesses. He understands that. The church in Acts 4 was in the center of God's will, and Satan was determined to destroy that in every way. It didn't just end there. The church has gone in those directions. Not every church. And I pray by the grace of God and the strength of the Almighty, this church will remain in the right road. We will not become like Madison Avenue. We will not become like Google. Our role and our purpose is to bring people to Christ and then disciple them in such a way that they can go out into the world and not be touched by the world, not to be scathed by the world in any way, but to impact those that the Holy Spirit gives to them. That's exactly what we're about. And in the midst of all that we do, we are to glorify God. I want to share a story with you that I've heard many times and been told over the centuries by many people. But one of my favorite uh, guys that was a writer from the Middle Ages was a fellow named St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas was a very unusual man 
he preached in an unusual way and he practiced his faith in an unusual way. And he wrote prolifically and, and, and just had such an understanding. Uh, I'll tell you, you were introduced to him before you knew his name. Because remember that little story about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? That was introduced in his Summa Theologica. Uh, I've got the Summa Theologica. It's 21 volumes. 18,000 pages, I think. He dealt with every question possible from Scripture. He's a great thinker. Yet, he understood that we were all, and he said this often, he said, as mighty and great are the wonders of God, we are all saved by grace that we did not earn, but was a gift. St. Thomas Aquinas walked into the Vatican in Rome. Not, he didn't live there, didn't want to live there, but was invited as an old man to go there. And he goes into the Vatican, and the Pope is there, and the Pope takes him back to the treasury. And he sees all the gold and, and, and all the jewels and all the statuary that was ancient and invaluable, the paintings that, that no one had anywhere. And he walks through that and, and he says this to St. Thomas Aquinas, the poor little man bent over like this and the Pope standing in his regal robes. He said, Aquinas, he said, in Acts, Simon Peter had to look at somebody and say, gold and silver have I none. And he said, today we've got all the gold and silver that we could ever use. And Aquinas looked at him and he said, Yes, you may have that gold and silver. But he said, remember the next part. And Peter looked at them and said, But what I have I give to thee in the name of Jesus. Stand up, rise, and walk. And he said, Holy Father, we need to go back to the last and forget about the first. We've got to understand that our life is brief and short. When you're young, you think you'll live forever. At a certain point, you realize that things are constantly changing, changing always. But the one thing that never changes is heaven. And we can influence our eternal destiny and our position in service, in eternity, here on earth. What you do here makes a difference. There's a line of people wanting to see Isaiah and Elijah and Jeremiah and Daniel and, and, and Abraham and Jacob. But I guarantee you, outside of Ananias and Sapphira's house, there's not a long line of people wanting to ask advice from you. I've got a feeling they're in heaven, but they're hanging their heads because they had a beautiful opportunity to demonstrate the Christ life, and they failed. Let's learn to be honest with God and let him change us. And let's put aside our plans and our goals and our expectations and our desires and let him lead us. For that's the only direction we truly can go in that will last. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much that in your holy word you guide us. You direct us. And even in scripture that we struggle with like this passage in Acts, you speak to us and let us know the, re 
reality of who and what we are. For we can never glorify ourselves and be of any use in your kingdom. We can never exalt and be proud about what we've done and ever touch the lives of those round about. 